0: Uh, As they head upstairs, uh, just a quick reminder that, uh, well, not a reminder, I'm going to let you know, Um, it's going to be helpful to have the passage in front of you. Not totally necessary, but helpful, because I am going to ask for some interaction. So if you have the handout notes, that's great. If you have your own Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. There are Bibles at the back, just in between there and over there. Um, Obviously, you can pull something up on your phone. And... that's just going to be helpful to have something in front of you. So you can go over and at the front there are um, sermon handout notes. Also, I just want to thank you for those who uh, continue to give and support our church through these tumultuous times and um, also want to challenge and encourage us. And this is kind of a good dovetail of what Mike said. You know, this is a time of year where one of the ways that Christmas changes us is that it shifts us and it should shift us from consumption to generosity. And so I challenge you, even in these final sort of two weeks before the end of of December, to look for a way that you can give a year-end gift, maybe to our church, maybe to an adjacent ministry like the Harbor, maybe to a ministry that is meaningful for you. And it doesn't have to be a huge gift, even if it's just the decision to say, instead of going out or instead of ordering pizza on this night, that money is going to go instead to this ministry. Um, Christmas teaches us the value and importance of giving. And I just want to encourage you guys into that discipline and a final push in these two weeks. Let me just pray for the offering. God, may we never be uh, tight-fisted. May we never be hesitant, fueled by fear, putting ourselves at the center of our priorities. And instead, give us eyes to see the opportunities to bless and serve those around us. Sometimes that comes through the giving of our time and talents and sometimes through the giving of the finances that you've entrusted to us. Help us to steward those finances well and to be generous, especially this time of year as a, as a kind of signpost of what you have done in, in your generosity towards us. Amen. Okay, so we're actually going to be studying a song this morning uh, of all the Christmas songs that you listen to and hear over and over and over and over and over again on the radio. Uh, this one doesn't get a lot of airtime, but it's one of, there's actually a few songs that happen around the Christmas story. And this is one of them, but it's one of the lesser studied ones It might be familiar to some of you, um, but it's one that you know, I've certainly never heard a, a message on. And uh, Christmas music is big in our house. I have noticed that, generally speaking, for every two or three years that Heather and I have been married and that we've had children, kind of the Christmas carol music creep keeps encroaching more into late November, mid-November, 1201 after Halloween, it kind of starts, And so Christmas music and setting that mood and setting that atmosphere is really, really important to us. And yes, there are absolutely songs by the time I get to Christmas that I'm sick of. I don't know. Does anyone else have songs that even at this point, they're like, if I don't hear that song again, I'm actually totally okay. Which one, Carrie? You can share. This is an open sharing time. Anything Mariah Carey, yes. I, when we came to the Kootenays, it was already big in Ontario, when we came to the Kootenays, I feel like they have like some kind of special agreement where Mariah Carey gets played every 30 minutes. Something, uh, Christmas, yeah, for sure. So there are songs that, you know, just even if they start well, they, they kind of um, grind us down and they become annoying. But I hope that the song we're looking at this morning, it comes with a certain kind of freshness. We're going to be looking at a song that is sung by Jesus' mother, and it's called the Magnificat. And that's because the first word of this song in Latin is Magnificat. And so if you've come from maybe a higher liturgy or Catholic background, this might be more known known to you. But in sort of Protestant circles, it doesn't get a lot of airtime, which is really sad because there's a lot of depth here, even if when you read through it at first glance, it just seems like a generic, like, oh, my, my heart praises God, awesome. I get to be the mother of God. That's sweet. There's a lot here that is powerfully relevant to us. I want to give you kind of a context for the story so far. So Luke chapter 1 and the preceding verses, it opens with a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's kind of a mirroring of the Hannah story from 1 Samuel where Elizabeth is barren and They have an angel come and say, hey, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner of Jesus. He's going to kind of point the way to Jesus. They're like, amazing. And then in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to Mary, to announce to Mary uh, his plans to use her to bring the Messiah into the world. So it's not on the screen, but I'm going to read you that exchange. So Elizabeth, six months pregnant, and then this is, then the, uh, um, Gabriel announces to Mary. And then at that time, Mary got ready, hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary greeting, the baby that was John the Baptist leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she proclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. And then, in the next verse, Mary, uh, kind of out of her heart and out of her growing awareness of what God is doing in and through her, she breaks into this song. Beginning in verse 46, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Now, there's a lot in this passage. Even if at first glance, it might leave us with the impression that this is simply a song of, of praise. Mary's song marks the first of four hymns or songs in Luke's birth narrative. So it's not, uh, not uncommon in sort of uh, pastor church circles to refer to this as like the first Christmas carol. This is the first song celebrating what God is doing in and through Christmas. And if you have the sermon notes, what I've done, just for, um, for those of you who want to compare it, is I've sort of placed Hannah's song or prayer from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Beside it, because there are some ways in which these line up. One of the really interesting things you notice in Scripture is that whenever God does something really significant and really powerful, often it's women giving voice to that in song. Miriam, the parting of the Red Sea. You you have Hannah. You have Mary. There's this pattern where when God does something big, it's often the women who are able to kind of see it and put it into theological articulation. And so these songs are really good. Some people have you know, literally transposed these into worship songs, but they're really important to study. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take just about 30 seconds and just in your Bible, on the page, just read through verses 46 to 55 on your own again. And let's just, after that, I'm going to throw it open and we'll have some interaction around what you notice and how that might be challenging us. So just take about 30 seconds and read over it, taking note of one or two things. I really enjoy doing these Sundays where there's a bit more interaction, but it's also a little anxiety producing because I kind of prepare for all kinds of threads and paths that we could go down. And so, if I have to kind of flip through some of my notes here um, in response as we get going, uh, just thanks for your patience in advance. We don't have to start at verse 46. You can start wherever you'd like to. But what is something that you noticed a word, a phrase, an idea that stood out to you from this song of praise? From the mother of Jesus. What do you notice? Rob? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people will talk about verses 51, 52, 53 as being sort of the fulcrum. It's the major uh, part of the song. Uh, someone was just, for those of you who are listening online, someone was just drawing attention to verses 51, 52, 53, and this theme of God acting uh, against and bringing low those who have, uh, through all kinds of means, sought to bring themselves up, who live with pride, And what he is doing is there's kind of an inversion of value where you have the powerful and the rich and the significant and those with status and have all all the advantages and privileges and leverages, he's actually bringing them low and he's paying attention and lifting up those whom the world, um, I was going to say, looks at and sees as insignificant, but sometimes they don't even look at them. They're so insignificant, they're kind of off the radar, right? You, you, you. You have that with Mary, where she says, "You know, the the mighty one has done great things," and I can almost hear that pause, like for me, like for like I'm a nobody. I don't come from any uh, heritage or background that would entitle me to be, in a sense, the mother of God to be trusted with this kind of responsibility. Yeah, we'll come back uh, there because there's a few, actually a few things to parse out in between. Those verses, I don't know if other people want to comment or what are other parts of the song that you guys notice? Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, the reflection was that kind of piggybacking on that theme of the, the mighty one has done great things for me. I hope, you know, you can see if you're a Christian, that should be a lyric in your life that you should be able to sing wholeheartedly. The mighty one has done great things. Like for me, like it's a surprise note. It's like, not like, oh yeah, God did great things. Obviously, Pfft, have you seen who I am? Have you seen my heart? Have you seen my, the trajectory of my life? Like, obviously, bam, God's going to be like, Fist pump and everything's going to be amazing. It's like, no, God has done amazing things for me. Wendy, I think you had your hand up. But there's a boldness. Yeah, the refle- for those listening online, the, the comment was Mary sort of embodying this confident humility. So we can sometimes think of humility as thinking less of ourselves. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm worthless. I, I don't matter, right? And, and in some church cultures, that is synonymous with being humble. That's what a humble person looks like in some church cultures. But scripturally, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less in general. Like you're more preoccupied with God. And when you do come to describe or think about yourself, it has this duality of, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm also loved by God. And God counts me as worthy and counts me as valuable. And I'm made in the image of God. And so that keeps you from bottoming out into this shame spiral of thinking that the way to walk humbly before God is just always being like, I'm just the worst. I'm the worst. I can't do anything right. Which isn't humble, right? Because when you're thinking like that and when you're talking like that, all you're doing is drawing consistent attention to yourself. So it's just a kind of weird sort of self-centeredness. To be truly humble. You know when you're um, around someone who's genuinely humble because they um, they just aren't in a healthy way. They aren't focused and fixated on themselves. They can be fully invested in you. They have a real strong, confident sense of who they are. And you see that confidence, you know, this Uh, poor, we know that from other clues in the gospel, this poor, from a worldly perspective, insignificant girl, young girl, um, is talking about how God's going to raise up the lowly. She sees this as going to be fulfilled in her life. He's, He's brought down the rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. She's counting herself in that. He's helped a servant Israel He's fulfilling his promises. Yeah, awesome. It's a beautiful picture here of when we are humble, there's still this impulse to celebrate God and to be like, yeah, like I matter because I'm I'm part of God's story. And God is using someone like me, even though from a lot of angles, it looks like I don't maybe have a lot to bring to the table. But God has put gifts in me and given me a voice and is calling me to obey in this manner. Anything else in this song that sticks out to you or that you want to draw attention to? Sorry about... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, in verse 48, just for those listening online, just drawing attention to the fact that this word mindful, that God is mindful of Mary. And that speaks to a number of things, including God's overall plan. It sort of begins with God being mindful and it ends with Mary saying, like, yeah, like he's going to fulfill his promises that he's promised to Abraham and all our ancestors. Like I'm part of a bigger story. I see it now. Like, you know, I always kind of knew it, but now I really see it. And the idea that God is mindful is powerful because you would imagine in an ancient context the God's being mindful of the people at the top of the power pyramid. Of course, God is mindful of his servants and those who embody him, which is the king or the ruler or the Caesar. But for God to be mindful of someone that isn't on the radar of any of the cultural elites of the day, that says something about God. And again, that is something that we need to recognize that God is mindful of us. We're on God's radar individually. And that's part of the Christmas message, right? That God comes in the flesh for us and like for you in a very, very personal way. Maybe one more reflection if people want to share it and then I'll... Yeah, Faith? Faith? Oh, nice. All generations will call me blessed. And how did that, or why did that stand out to you? Or was it just. But she knew that. But she just knew that that was coming, that, that this was a that met, it was a that Yeah, absolutely. There's, whenever God calls people, there's this weird duality of I don't know the scope and scale of what I'm getting into, but I know it's something big. And this is going to be a definitive line between like before and after. And that can happen in the before and after we come to Jesus. But it can also happen as God transitions us into new places, new opportunities in our lives. And you see Mary seeing through the eyes of faith. She doesn't see the full detailed outlay, blueprint of how the next number of decades are going to play out. Um, and we know that because when Jesus is older, she actually... Is concerned that he's lost his mind at one point in the Gospels. We read about that. And so she doesn't see all of the play uh, of the outplay, but she sees enough to say, This this is big, not just for me, but for um, not just all of Israel, but for every generation. Like time moving forward. And that's true, right? I mean, our literal calendar, the way we mark time is before Jesus. And with the birth of Jesus and after Jesus, everything gets centered, just like these Advent candles, everything gets centered around Jesus. I think that's a really, really important insight. And she also calls God just to bring these together because I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that if you were um, raised or exposed uh, to kind of Catholic theology and a Roman Catholic church, there, there can be this um, weird... Um, Movement from Mary's blessed to Mary is holy. And there can be kind of like a pseudo-divinity thing attached to Mary, but she calls God in verse 47 my Savior. Like my Savior, not the Savior, like for other people. Like mine. Even though she's humble, even though she's God-fearing, even though she's relatively young, she still says, I need God. And she recognizes though that because of that surrender, because of that obedience, she's going to be called blessed. I am going to dovetail back into verses 51, 52, and 53 because for me these point to three kind of revolutions and Rob did a really good job of um, highlighting the heart of it which is about those who think they're high being brought low, those who are humble um, and ignored by the world being brought up. But I want to extend that out and because it also connects with a lot of the reflections that you guys had. The first is... In verse 51, she says, she talks about a a moral revolution that Jesus is going to bring, that Christmas brings a moral revolution. She says that he scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that it's actually impossible to understand and believe in the story of Christmas, that God himself Came to seek and save us, and be self-righteous at the same time. To be, um, to have a a real sense of yeah, I've, I've kind of I've got my stuff together, and I'm I'm am a really solid person. Part of the part of the revolution that Christmas does in every heart is it confronts you with the fact that you are broken, you are lost, you are a sinner, you are alienated from God, and God has come near. You're not so good that God was up in heaven and you got to go up. He had to come down. And so Christmas for all of us, whether we hear the story for the first time this year or for the hundredth time, it should really do a number on any vestiges of pride in our life. Christmas scatters the proud. And then verse 52, it says, he's brought down rulers from thrones and he's lifted up the humble. And it is about those who think they're high and mighty being brought low and God lifting up. But not just in a spiritual sense. It's very clear from this passage, and it happens as the New Testament plays out. God literally rearranges the social order. So there's a moral revolution that happens in people's hearts at Christmas where you realize my pride gets obliterated, hopefully, and if God's doing a work, I grow in humility but also, there's a social revolution. That the message of Christmas actually challenges us to think about how to organize ourselves as a church and a society differently. And instead of just allowing a few people at the top to sort of have their own way and, and, and the small amount, a uh, huge amount of power invested in a small amount of people. And they just exploit that and leverage that to their own gain and that's just the way things are. Mary says, no, what's going to happen is he's going to bring down rulers from their thrones. We see God doing that in the Old Testament and God's going to do that through Jesus. And he's lifting up the the humble. So there is a revolutionary element to this Magnificat, this song. Now, some people don't have eyes to see that. I I certainly didn't. And part of that is because, in general, I'm at the top globally of power and privilege and access to wealth and all kinds of opportunities. So this doesn't hit the same way. But if you're in a you know, massively destitute um, state in a country or a context where there is real and ongoing oppression, this speaks powerfully to you. And one of the evidences of that is that even in countries where Christianity and Christian worship has been not just allowed, but has been brought in as part of uh, trying to build up a a certain cultural scaffolding for Christianity, even in many of those cultures, um, Argentina is one, no church was allowed to preach or read this song, ever. I got, I'm, not, I'm not talking about communist China. We're not allowed to, in certain areas to preach the Bible at all. I'm talking about Christian nations. This was forbidden to be preached because it gave hope and dignity and empowerment to people on the bottom. And it said to them, that's not what God wants for you. And it spoke very clearly and incisively to people who held all the power and were just like, wow, how blessed are we? Praise God. Look at all the, look at the access to all this awesome stuff that we have. But they didn't um, allow that, the revolution of Christmas to change how they leveraged that power and that influence and that wealth for the betterment of their community. There aren't many passages in the Bible. There are a few. There's not many that have been banned from churches to preach. But this is one of them. And that verse, verse 52, is one of them. I don't know what we do with that in our context. I'm just throwing it out there to say... Christians have understood this is good news. And Christmas is good news to the poor. Not simply because, oh, if you're poor, God loves you. Just hang on tight and then one day get to go to heaven. But God wants to bring restoration and healing and a redignification to you in your life. And that means when the kingdom of God comes with power, you will be brought up. And those who think that they are better than you will be brought low. And man, that got poor people excited. And that's why in general, in almost any context where the gospel is shared, where the message of Christianity goes, poor people embrace it first. Because they see and they hear this and they're like, wait, so God doesn't just care about my soul? He cares about like my social reality right now? Like I get to walk in dignity? And then in verse 53, it says, he, God, filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. That's the third revolution. The first is moral, but pride. The second is social, but the third is economic. There's going to be an economic revolution. The coming of Jesus isn't simply spiritual if you understand that to mean, well, our soul gets to go to heaven because our sin is covered. Christmas is spiritual in the sense that it completely enfolds one's life and sets you on a new path holistically. And as that happens, all of the dimensions of our life as an individual, as a couple, as a family, and God willing, if a society, if there's critical mass in society, as a society begins to reorganize itself. Not just simply carry on with the way things are going and then just wait for heaven to happen, but to live into the prayer, oh God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now the prayer isn't god things on earth can you speed it up so we can go to heaven it's your will be done May your kingdom come here in this family in this community in this school in this classroom on the sports team how do we do that one of it is going to be an economic revolution where christmas challenges us to realize especially the more we have that is a gift from god doesn't mean we don't enjoy it and we don't give thanks for it, but we also have to seriously pray about how do we leverage that wealth and that prosperity, for the advancement of God's kingdom, for the strengthening and betterment of the world, for the redignifying of lives. Right? I think of um, the fundraiser Rick and some of the students did in the summer. That just came to mind, right? When you're raising funds and you're making sacrifices, so those who have been uh, trafficked. Can find not just release from that cycle, but now therapy and counseling and be set on a new path. That's not just about the lowly and the forgotten and the and the mistreated being saved out of a bad situation. It also has social and economic ramifications. We're dignifying you, we're setting you on a path, we're saying God's plans and purposes for you are good. Here's training. Here's therapy. Here's a whole new way of living. That's why Mary sings. That's why Christmas is so powerful and so awesome. And when we get it, it has to challenge us. Maybe not at all of these levels simultaneously. It can be a lot for us to take in, but maybe there's one of these levels where you say, I don't really know how to apply this, but I feel like this is supposed to be doing a work in my heart, God. You can't celebrate Christmas and stay prideful. You can't celebrate Christmas and know what it is and then just look down on other people and just consume more and more and more and more, having an increasingly self-centered life. And you can't know and understand what Christmas is and just have an outlook on money and status and power that is all about, well, how is this working for me? How do I get more? How do I extract? How do I leverage what I have and compound all these advantages for myself? There's a revolution at the heart of Mary's song. And it makes it dangerous, but it makes it important for all of us to hear. So the revolutions in our heart that arise out of Christmas are the moral revolution. We move from pride to humility. It's a social revolution because he's going to invite some of us down and he's going to invite some of us up. And there's an economic revolution where we're invited into a life of generosity where God, in a sense, says says to each of us, how are you going to fill the hungry with good things? That is the power of Christmas. Christmas isn't amazing because it is an um, artificially um, constructed uh, sentimental constellation of songs and, and well wishes that oh, just kind of tip the scales and make us go, oh, I'll give like 50 bucks to the Salvation Army. It's not about do-goodism. It's a revelation of who God was and is and what He is setting out to do. And how that rearranges things. It, ha- it has to rearrange things at the level of each of our hearts and our lives and our society and the world. And when you begin to see that and when you live into it, then there is both comfort and deep joy. Let's pray. God, man, this is... a. Uh, this is a wild, crazy song and it seems pretty safe and benign at first pass, but the more you think about its themes, it's uh, it's really challenging. I pray that through your spirit you would do a work into every heart here so that the power of this song and what it speaks to and what it invites us into would not be lost on us, God. Use it to prepare us as we move towards Christmas. Amen. I invite you to stand for our